Welcome to the first episode of Debatable, a new podcast by Anthro Magazine and KPLY Radio from the Incubator Program at Palo Alto High School. I'm your host, Olga Muse. In this series, we'll host various student-led debates on a wide range of topics, from politics to culture. On today's episode, I sat down with two Democratic Pali students, William Rummelhart and Rohan Ghosh, to discuss and debate questions pertaining to the election of Joe Biden and the results on the California ballot measures. What does this election mean for the Democratic Party? What precedents have been set by the campaign's run on certain props? Are the divisions between progressives and moderates within the Democratic Party wider than we think? Find out on this episode of Debatable. Just start off by like introducing yourselves, you know, name, grade, like how you would define yourself, I guess, loosely politically. Okay, uh, I can start. So I'm William, I'm a junior. And politically, I call I label myself a moderate Democrat, pretty centrist, like Andrew Cuomo, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden is kind of my line. I'm Rohan Ghosh. I'm a senior uh, at Pelly, and I uh, I've been involved in a lot of political work locally here, including I serve in the state board of California High School Democrats and on the local Democratic Party Central Committee, and uh, I, I identify as a staunch progressive. We're in between social democrat and democratic socialist. I, I, I fundamentally believe in a, a society built on economic, social, and environmental justice, and I think that that is an attainable society. So I guess I'll start by to, I'll begin with the questions about the California props. So I guess to both of you, overall, how do you feel about the results on the propositions in California from this year? Um, well, first of all, I, I actually wasn't so surprised about the results as much as the margins, the really big margins on things like the affirmative action appeal, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I think overall, I'm pretty relieved about a lot, a lot of the propositions that the votes were on. Um, I think the one that I'm really upset on is the not overturning the ban on affirmative action. Like that just makes no sense to me. Why, why, why you would have a ban on affirmative action in California. Um, but yeah, overall, I wasn't super surprised by the results more by the super double digit margins on a lot of them. I think for me, definitely the results are extremely disappointing. Uh, I think in the work I was working in, but I, what I will say is what I think this really highlights above all is the amount of influence that these large, that, that big money has in California politics and how flawed our ballot measure system is. Uh, we saw that almost all of the results that we had, especially on, the, uh, on any of the propositions that had a financial implication, the side that one was the side that spent more money and on often extremely misleading advertising. And that was borne out in the exit polling, actually. So I think by and large, voters were extremely misled by how this, how the propositions went this cycle and the messaging around them. Moving on to the first like solid question. 
Proposition 15 would have increased property taxes on most commercial properties worth over $3 million in order to provide more funding to local government and schools. The proposition would have sealed a more than 40-year-old loophole introduced into California tax law by Proposition 13, which allowed corporations to avoid paying current levels of property taxes by leasing buildings from original owners who were still paying taxes on their land at the rates that they were when they purchased the property, um, usually in the 70s and the 80s. Um, currently, votes on Prop 15 are sitting at 51.9% no. What are your thoughts about the proposition and the current results? Should further attempts uh, to close the loophole be made? So I think the Proposition 13 in 1970 was, an, is an, was and continues to be an unmitigated disaster, completely nonsensical. I think the intent that you have senior citizens who bought their house 40 years ago at one price and now it's at a different price even though their asset has gained worth they they themselves may not have gained money i think that is a legitimate question but to put it over as your blanket policy i think is just really absurd as 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 olga mentioned yeah it re reduces tax revenue dramatically that should be being produced that, that should be produced um so i think maybe there needs to be another solution but it's really Prop 13 is like one of the worst examples of a proposition ever that we're stuck with from like the 1970s. And I would agree with that. I think one of the biggest issues we have in California right now, I mean, we rank so far near the bottom in terms of school funding. So many big issues that we have are plagued by a lack of funding on the local level. And that's because of Prop 13. And I think the biggest issue with Prop 13 is it doesn't actually protect homeowners that much. Homeowners are having to subsidize corporations like Chevron who own massive land holdings that are, that are worth a lot of money. And that's what Prop 15 would fix. And I think the issues that we had this time are people were afraid that this would raise their residential property taxes, which it would not do. And I think that's where that misleading messaging, I think over $74 million were spent by the no side on this with the California Chamber of Commerce. And, and I think that's where spending caps comes in. And I think the other thing on this that we have to do is that we have to recognize with Prop 15 at least is this was the first effort made in decades to actually address property taxes. And, uh, and uh, in this manner specifically, in a way that would drastically increase revenues. And the coalition that Prop 15 has built, where this one campaign, the Yes on 15 campaign, was every major labor group in the entire state was on board. Every YIMBY group in the entire state, all the pro-housing groups, uh, YIMBY Action, California, YIMBY, East Bay for Everyone, Abundant Housing LA, all of those groups. Uh, all of the left-wing groups, so every single DSA chapter in the entire state of California, that form of broad big tent progressive coalition is I think the future of California politics. And I think that being able to keep that coalition together and maybe next time throw in some type of thing to make sure it's explicit that it will not raise taxes for homeowners such as an across the board slight reduction in residential property taxes, or actually just going the full way and making property taxes on residential properties uh, not frozen and progressive based on income, not based on actual property value. Those are what will allow us to actually pass this going forward. 
mean, Californians fundamentally, we want our schools to be funded regardless of if you voted no or yes on it. Like nobody likes having underfunded schools. I agree with pretty much all of that, so. Okay, moving on. One of the most hotly contested and heavily funded propositions on the ballot this year was Proposition 22. The proposition, if passed, would have allowed uh, would have allowed app-based drivers for services such as Uber and Lyft to consider drivers under them to be classified as independent contractors rather than employees. This would mean that workers for these app-based driving companies would be guaranteed the same would not be guaranteed the same benefits and protections as standard employees within California, but would allow them flexibility in their hours. Uber and Lyft collectively spent $205 million to campaign in favor of the bill, and 58.1% of the current votes on the proposition are also in favor. Many progressives have many, sorry, many progressives have called this a vote against workers' rights, while supporters of the prop say that this was a best-case scenario. What precedence does passing Prop 22 set in terms of how in terms of how the campaign for it was run and the legislation that it establishes. Is its passing a failure to protect the rights of workers or the best solution to a difficult issue? So I think, first of all, I think what's important to define the problem here. So with the Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, want to include that, um, gig worker app-based stuff, the real solution, there needs to be a third category because people need to be able to have flexible hours. 80% of all gig workers say support flexible hours and say that that's really essential for them. So you need to have the flexible hours, but also have benefits. So my view on Prop 22 is that it is, I, 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 I supported, I was in support of Prop 22 and that it is though imperfect in many ways is much better than our current situation of limbo. That the California state legislature attempted to force all independent contractors, so all Uber, Lyft, DoorDash drivers, to be classified as employees a few months ago. That was blocked at the last minute by, the, by a court in California. And so you have the companies and the workers both in limbo, not knowing what's going on. So I think, again, I placed the blame on the legislature originally, but I think Prop 22, as Olga mentioned, is one of those best solution currently available to this problem. And I think just saying no on some principled idea of, oh no, the big bad companies is really not appreciating the situation and the complexities of what's actually um, the circumstances are. I, I fundamentally disagree with that. I think Prop 22 is an absolute disaster for a couple of reasons. I think putting the policy aside, which I'll get to in a bit, there are two big precedents here. One is that Prop 22 requires a seven-eighths majority in the legislature to amend at all. That, on principle, that itself is a reason to kill any form of legislation. Because we live in a changing world, we live in a changing economy, and anything that requires a seven-eighths majority to amend, is that's ridiculous. And fundamentally, the idea that uh, a corporation can, if they, the president of if any law is something that a corporation does not like, that they can spend $200 million to overturn it, that precedent is an attack on the very idea of representative democracy itself. Then further though, on the policy side, I, I think the blame here lies at one place, which is the companies themselves. It is, 
if under AB5, the rule is if a worker is working less than 40 hours a week, they can still be classified as a contractor. But under AB5, the, 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 the rule of full employment only applies if a worker is working at over 40 hours a week. And Prop 22 does not actually guarantee benefits. The benefits it guarantees look good on paper. In reality, they do not exist. The, the, the minimum wage rule that it has only applies for when an Uber driver act, or when a driver is actually completing a job, which is not the majority of time they're on the job because the majority of time they're waiting for jobs. And it is not the responsibility of the taxpayer through social programs to subsidize corporations desire to pay workers poverty wages. That's not our job as taxpayers. It's the job of companies to pay their workers for the like for the wealth that they create. And then fundamentally, I think the, the main human rights issues with Prop 22 are also the fact that it takes away any right of, of those contract workers to collectively bargain in any form at all. Uh, it takes away their entire rights under the, Fair, uh, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, both under state and federal law. And it entirely removes uh, employees of those companies' rights to file lawsuits in class action for issues which are fundamentally the liability of the company themselves, such as uh, lack of access to PPE or uh, or or a bad client who sexually harasses an employee. Those are in every other work environment, the responsibility of the employer. But this is a case of corporate welfare, of Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, deciding that they didn't like the way a law was passed. So they were gonna buy their own law, make it permanent, and wiggle their way out of their responsibility to the worker, to their workers and their responsibility to the public. Okay, you have a minute. So, I, I I think I think it's 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 inaccurate to say that the problem is the companies. The issue is the very archaic way that the California em employee versus independent contractor distinction is created. So the actual issue is, in order to get the full benefits that an employee in California is, is, is entitled to, you, you, you have to have set hours. So the, the, the fundamental problem here is you have people who, who, who need to have the flexible hours, who are not doing it as a, as on a side job, as a main job, who are losing out on those benefits. So I 100% Prop 22 does not guarantee does not list out all these guaranteed benefits. What it is, it's a step in the right direction to creating a third category in between employee and independent contractor. And it's actually, it's not only Uber Lyft. The original California law also applied to, I know my grandfather lives up in Mendocino County. The local newspaper in Mendocino County employs its workers as independent contractors. They get paid $4 per article that they write. So 
the newspaper could not possibly function if those people were, were required to be employees. So the California law originally had an inordinate number of issues. So it was a poorly created law. It was a rush law towards the end of the session. And it got, it was an emergency injunction in, on August 24th, on the last day. And Prop 22 is, is an incomplete, imperfect, but I think noble and necessary attempt to rectify that issue. So I don't think the big bad companies, I mean, there's a lot of other support for Prop 22 besides the, um, the companies I have here, just NAACP, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Um, so that's, I guess that, that was, I just, I'm disagreeing with the framing of the issue as it being about the companies as opposed to the California law. If this is a problem that we have to take further steps to solve, a, a, a proposed solution that is legitimately impossible to amend and takes away every right of workers to collectively bargain, every right of workers and leaves workers entirely at the mercy of those companies, that is not a form of, I mean, that, that is not any form of solution. That's a form of kleptocracy. That, that what it does, it, it, and it doesn't, Prop 22 doesn't affect any of those other industries except for drivers. It is that targeted. It is a specific carve out for a specific industry. And these are, the, the issue of flexible hours is an issue that, an issue of flexible of workers on flexible hours being uh, covered under state benefits laws. Those are, that is an issue that the that organized labor has been trying to work towards uh, solving for a long time in this state. Except the main opponents of that have been the have been these very companies because they don't want to pay workers minimum wage. They, they want to have a special carve out that they are somehow better than everyone else and thus don't have to pay minimum wage. They don't have to pay healthcare benefits under the Affordable Care Act. They don't have to be liable when workers get injured. These are, and the idea that this, this is somehow, that AB5, it was a mixed piece of legislation but the idea that AB5 somehow resulted in, in workers not being able to work on flexible schedules when it does not apply to workers working under 40 hours a week with a specific company, it, that, is an that was a problem we never needed to solve. Workers who worked under, 30, under 40 hours a week for a specific, under, under 40 hours a week with a specific company were not covered under AB5 rules. They could still stay contractors, but uh, what Prop 22 does, it says that no matter how many hours someone works with Uber or Lyft or Instacart or DoorDash or the companies that are covered under it, no matter how many hours they work as a driver, they will, never be able to collectively bargain. They will never be able to access their benefits that, they're, that would normally be entitled to by law. They will never be able to be covered by minimum wage. And that seven eighths majority clause makes it so that 
they will, there is a almost zero chance of the legislature ever being able to repeal this. This is a, this is a plain and simple corporate power grab. Okay. Um, so I think the issue is not, again, I think as you alluded to, the issue is not workers who are driving for Uber or Lyft or DoorDash as a supplement to their main job. That, that is not the problem. The, the problem is people who are working these fundamentally gig gig jobs, they're going to get, you say they're waiting, yeah, they're going to waiting for us, uh, somebody to pick up, working full-time hours and not getting the benefits. So that is a valid issue. I guess the thing, the thing that I am struggling with is prop, you can build upon Prop 22. Prop 22 does not, with, you, you can't repeat, it'd be very hard to repeal it, but you it does not cannot, limit. You legally cannot build upon it because you cannot amend the text of the law. You can, no, no, no. You, you, you can work on the California, you can create a third designation in the California employment law. And in, in, in this designation, you can provide you can guarantee certain benefits for workers, the rough outline of which was, was detailed in Prop 22, that who also have flexible hours. So it's a very, it, it is very narrowly focused on the people who are gig workers who work full-time hours, over 40 hours, who are not getting these benefits, but who need, the, need those flexible hours. So it, I think it, it actually is a very narrow issue here. Um, it's a very and, and, and this very narrow group of people need to have a third designation besides employee and independent contractor. Trying to stuff them into the employee category just in order to guarantee their benefits, you break the whole business model, which hurts both them and the companies. So I think that's 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 my basic view of of it's a very specific issue here. Well, no, you. I, that's that's what you said about that that possibility of a of a carve out for a third category. That's that's factually incorrect because for it to apply to drivers and also cover wage rules and benefit rules, it would have to amend Prop Twenty Two, which would require either a ballot measure or a seven eighths majority in the legislature, because the the rule for for drivers now, the entire segment of what their rules for liability, for wages, for hours, and for benefits, that has now been entirely set by Prop 22. That's basically set into stone. And beyond just the policy issue here, the precedent of a, of a set of companies, an industry, deciding they don't like a law, so they're gonna buy themselves a new law and make it permanent whenever they don't like a law, that precedent itself is so anti-democratic that regardless of the policy implication, this is a very dangerous precedent. And I think our best hope is if the state courts repeal Prop 22. And also going forward, that we pass spending caps ballot measures, and hopefully, through the power of organized labor, can 
break this sort of stranglehold that these companies have both on the legislative system and on their workers. Okay, so because we have a lot of questions still to get to, William, I'll give you like a minute or two just to like make your final comment and then we'll move on, okay? Sure. I mean, I, I think I feel like I'm I'm a broken record here. I think I've been saying the same thing. So I think it's a good place to generally stop. Yeah, I just I just I think again, I, I'm maybe I'm too overly focused on this. I'm the idea of industry versus labor. I think you can see that clearly in in spending, right? And who are the major proponents behind the yes and no. But I think the implications of the of, of the people themselves, independent of any organized labor movement. I think people were incredible, 80% in support of flexible hours, incredibly important for people. So I think, again, that that is actually the main issue here, as demonstrated by that, um, by polls that have showed overwhelming importance that people place on having flexible hours. Okay, cool. So the next question. The California housing crisis is one of the most pressing issues facing the state currently. Proposition 21 would have allowed local governments to establish rent control on residential properties over 15 years old. Or, yeah. Currently, the votes on Prop 21 are at 59.6% against it. Uh, what does this overwhelming vote against rent control indicate about California voters? How should the housing crisis be addressed, if not through rent control? So I have a very complicated relationship with rent control. So I think rent control is enormously important in some circumstances, right? But I think the main way to solve this um, or to alleviate, help alleviate this housing crisis is to build more housing. And actually not, I mean, especially affordable housing, but more so actually market rate housing too. Because the issue is we have, so much demand and too little supply, right? And so we have these incredible prices. And so the real way is we got to get rid of this nimbyism that's not in my backyard, um, which there were attempts to do with Senate Bill 50, which would preempt some stupid city density issues. Um, and that, so I don't think rent control is, is, is in any way a broad solution to, this, to, to the housing crisis, though I think it is important, as I said, for some cities to be able to apply in certain cases. So I'd agree with that. I actually, most of the work I do is in housing policy. And, uh, and I think there's the way I would extrapolate what, what you just said, but the way I like to frame it is there, there are three things we need to do in order to protect, in order to solve the housing crisis. That is, we need to preserve existing affordable housing that means uh, enforcement of state laws like SB 330. So when a building is torn down, the exact same number of units, uh, at least the exact, at least the previous number of units are built and that they're left at the same level of affordability. Then we have to produce more housing at all income levels, especially below market rate, but at all income levels and concentrate as much of that as possible not in existing low-income areas, but in high-income areas, such as Palo Alto. I think it's one of the biggest problems we have is these rich suburbs like Palo Alto that don't build housing, avoiding state law like SB 35. 
And that is why we need laws like SB 827 or the reiteration of that in SB 50 that will say, you know what? You don't get to shirk your responsibilities, Palo Alto or Beverly Hills or Huntington Beach. You, you have to build housing. But I think that the final piece of that is protect is protecting existing residents because we cannot continue to see the level of displacement we've had. And the truth is, I mean, there's like there's disagreement on this on a theoretical economic level, but on the ground, we can see that rent control works. Uh, for example, within Silicon Valley, the city of East Palo Alto is sandwiched between Palo Alto and Facebook. It is probably one of the most high land value areas in the entire state. But somehow East Palo Alto has still managed to keep its low income residents largely protected and largely avoid displacement. And part of that is because East Palo Alto has some of the strictest rent control in the entire state of California. And the issue with the Costa-Hawkins Act is that it has a set date, 1995, that after which no building can be rent controlled. Now we've gone around that through amending it with AB 1482, which sets like a blanket rent control across the whole state at about 10%, or actually you know, it's 5% plus inflation. So right now it's about seven or 8%. And that has done a great deal actually to protect tenants from eviction. But with proper measures like how Prop 21 had the 15 year grace period, uh, rent control does not discourage the construction of new housing. We've seen that play out in Los Angeles. We've seen that play out in East Palo Alto, which has done some of the best job of building new, new affordable housing, although they have not built any market rate housing recently. But it's because it's a largely low income community. And we've seen it in Mountain View, which passed rent control in 2016. And since then, has actually exceeded its state set housing goals. Meanwhile, Palo Alto, we're sitting at achieving about 20% of our goals. So I think the idea that rent control is the problem is not true. Rent control is a solution, it's not the solution. And it has to be one piece of how we fix this. And I think Prop 21 is another argument for why we need those spending caps on ballot measures. Uh, large real estate companies spent a huge amount of money against it. And I think this is something that bit by bit we can tackle at the legislature with strong tenant organizing and a strong tenants movement helping along the way. And trying to foster what we've built on the peninsula, which is an alliance between kind of YIMBY, pro-housing organizing and tenants, tenants rights organizing, the very opposite of what we have in San Francisco. We need to move towards uh, making sure that we produce housing, preserve housing, and also protect residents. And I think repealing Costa-Hawkins is a big part of that. I'm, I'm fundamentally in agreement with this. I just, um, yeah, I mean, I think 100%, I mean, Palo Alto, ambitious Palo Alto is so behind, it's laughable. And, and, and Beverly Hills hasn't even started. They haven't left the courthouse yet trying to not shirk their responsibility. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I, yes, rent control can be a solution. I think East Palo Alto examples is, is a very good example of that, and it's it's not the solution. Um, and I think I, I think generally, I want cities to be able to have the authority to 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 institute what policy works best, right? So what worked rent control in East Palo Alto may not work 
well in in someplace else outside of Silicon Valley. But I want East Palo Alto to be able to impose that and another city not to be able to, because I think there's enormous, um, the very disparate climates, right, that all these cities are in, in terms of housing. Um, and in terms of at what rate their demand is growing um, and, and, and how much construction, how much interest, business interest, there is development interest. So I think that's, I'm, I 100% agree basically with what I agree with that local control piece, but I think we're agreement on this, this part, what I'm about to say too, which is that should not apply to zoning, which is if you're a city like Palo Alto and you've been dragging your feet for the past few decades, you don't, like, you, the state should not have to trust you to set your own zoning rules. Like at that point, I think it's it's funny if I if I can digress for a little bit that Palo Alto for our next uh, regional housing need allocation cycle, next five years, the state is mandating that we are supposed to plan and permit for building up to ten thousand units. The way the city council elections this cycle went is uh, we have a NIMBY supermajority now. So it's gonna be very fun to see how those lawsuits play out, especially now with state law cracking down on cities shirking the responsibility. Palo Alto is going to, is, is heading straight into a lawsuit next cycle. Okay, since we seem to be in agreement, I will move on to the final question in the proposition section. Um, so what have the voting results on the last cycle of California propositions revealed about California voters? Um, do they work to discredit the idea that California is a progressive state? Why or why not? I don't think you can, you can say not, I mean, you can maybe say less progressive state. I mean, I think, I think there was enormous interest in these issues. And I think there were some very poorly drawn weirdly worded um, propositions like and 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 the ban on affirmative action um uh so i think i think my overall takeaway is just maybe yeah, again maybe less progressive than 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 you know than i thought and that others thought but i think still you know clearly progressive i mean i if i'm not mistaken there was overwhelming support to um, get rid of super harsh bail, uh, bail or something, or super harsh sentences for former convicts. Um, I butchered that, but something like that. So I think that was something that was very encouraging. But again, maybe less progressive than 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 I assumed. I, I would, yeah. I I think fundamentally what this shows is that is is the flaws in our proposition system that so much that that we can draw a direct correlation of money spent versus result that I think that fundamentally, I mean, correlation isn't causation, but when it applies for every single proposition, we have a problem. So I think really this is something where we have to look at how we let the, the funding for these elections work. Now let's move on to the second kind of part, which will be questions concerning the presidential election and the Democratic Party at, on like a wider level. Um, so on. despite recent statements by the sitting president, Democrat Joe Biden has secured enough electoral votes to become the next president of the United States. How should the Democratic Party move forward with this, with this result? Uh, what should the main goals of the next four years be? So um, I think what what the approach should be going forward actually depends a lot on the Senate. 
which I'm praying to everybody, um, everybody up there, that in January 5th or 6th that Georgia goes blue and doesn't doesn't look back. Um, but I think just even you know with the Senate uh, Democrat or not or Republican, what the Biden administration really needs to focus on, and I think they are. I'm encouraged by their transition effort so far, is repairing the Trump rot, the Trump damage. So to um, national standing, so foreign policy reaching out to leaders. Biden has Biden is very experienced with foreign policy, so I have confidence in that. Um, and also, like the Justice Department is completely corrupt. I have literally have no faith left in most of the seemingly political decisions, which includes the recent Google antitrust, which is, stinks a little bit if you look into it. Um, so I really think more oversight integrity in government, get the career people back in government, improve America's standing, restore it to where it was on the world stage. That is what I think that Biden's priorities uh, need to be going forward, independent of the Senate. I, I would agree for that with that in part, but I think fundamentally what we have to look at is the fact that of who Biden owes for the win. And it was not like suburban Republicans or or like Lincoln Project voters or people who who gave Biden that win. It was people in the core urban areas, largely black voters, largely very progressive in uh, in cities like Atlanta and Philadelphia and Detroit, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee. At the same the same voters who made the electoral college margin for Biden or voters who voted for people like Nikema Williams for Congress in Atlanta and uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar to Congress in their districts. That is the base that put Biden in office. These are people who compromised and voted for someone who is not of their values to avoid the travesty of another four years of Trump. And I think it would be a grave disservice for a, a Biden administration to ignore that. These, the, the, the thing is, the issues that allowed Trump to gain support in the first place, they're, they're not gonna go away easily. They're, I don't think Trump is, was the problem. I think Trump is a symptom of the problems that we have in this country. And I think unless we fix those fundamental issues of economic injustice, uh, issues of labor and whatnot, those issues of labor, issues of lack of access to education or healthcare, uh, issues of environmental injustice in places like South Texas or in Pennsylvania or Detroit, that there is no, like unless we give people a reason for Democrat, uh, reason to vote for Democrats, there is no, like Democrats will continue to lose elections. I, I agree in large part. I think um, I think Biden acknowledged, if I'm not mistaken, in his in his victory speech, um, the 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 black vote was really strong and super important in Georgia. Um, I, I think, and so yes, I you know should be should be there should be some recognition of that by Biden, and I and I hope, and I I expect, and I hope that there will be. Um, I guess my one. Um, issue with this is there the economic disaffection. There is a problem 
with non-college educated voters that the Democratic Party has. And I think, and I, and, and I, think, I think that problem is largely rooted in an economic disaffection and Trump's, pop, and Trump's populism and so-called drain, drain the swamp and <laughs> Wall Street's bad, even though that's completely ironic with, with Trump. But that whole idea, the, I do agree that the Democrats don't have a good counter to that. So for me, going forward, the main um, uh, group that that the Democrats need to target in terms of to expand their um, their block is not is non college voters because this got completely crushed everywhere um, with non with 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 non college educated. So I guess that that would be my take going forward. Really trying to work out to reach out to. Um, those people and address, like you said, some of the economic disaffection that a lot of people feel with the current um, state of the country. The thing is, I think Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez put it really well in an interview she did a while back, which is that for Democrats to win elections, people have to feel the positive material consequences of Democratic Party governance. People have to actually have more money in their bank account. People have to actually be more secure in their homes and in their, uh, and they have to send their kids to better schools. People have to be able to not just read in the newspaper that Democrats are governing, they have to feel it. And I think if that is the lens that we take, that the, the Democratic Party takes to governments going forward, at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, everywhere, that is a formula for winning elections into the future. Right. So, just one thing. So, because I've kind of sensed this is where the conversation is probably heading, I'm going to just pop this question. Um, it's a little out of order, sorry, but so some Democratic members of the House have placed blame on the Democratic left for recent losses of House seats. And Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez said in a recent interview with uh, with the New York Times that quote, "The last two years have been pretty hostile. Externally, we've been winning. Externally, there's been a ton of support, but internally, there's been extremely." it's been extremely hostile to anything that even smells progressive. Is this anti-progressivism within the Democratic Party dangerous? Should the Democratic Party be more open to a progressive platform or should they remain more centrist? I don't think it's fair. I don't, I, I, I would not ascribe blame for the disastrous showing, frankly, in the house of, of this last election to the Democratic left. I would not, I would not automatically do that. Um, what I will say is it's abundantly clear that the socialist attack, the, the socialist label on people who are as, you know, Joe Biden is, you can say whatever you want about him, he's not a socialist, like there's just no even possible debate there. And I think that that attack had real, did real damage in places like Florida um, and, and, and elsewhere where, where Biden was close, but he couldn't quite make it. And I think also on, in, the, in the House level, I think, again, in Florida is another great example with uh, Donna Shalala um, in, in, in Southern Florida. So I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not ready to say more progressive, less progressive. I don't know if I can make that judgment. It really depends on the Senate. If the Senate is Republican, the only hope of getting anything remotely through, if, if anything at all, is if you make some appeal to 
compromise on policy, not on principle. But you, 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 the idea that we're gonna, we should, we should, we should stand for what we want. That's really great. But if you can't get it passed, then it's a little bit um, worthless, in in my view. So again, I don't know more left, less left. I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I can't. I don't really have a good judgment on that yet. But I do think. We, we need to be very wary of the socialist attack that it really does real damage in places that we're trying to flip and places that we're trying to to um, to expand the the democratic um, base. I mean, I think what, what it may be interesting to see is one of the areas where like uh, Biden actually trailed the most underperformed Hillary Clinton underperformed Beto O'Rourke is the Hispanic majority regions of South Texas. Those are areas that are majority registered Democrats. And in the primary, they voted upwards of 70% for Bernie Sanders, many of those counties. So I think the idea that, that, that somehow the left is what's damaging the Democratic Party is, I don't think, accurate. As far as how we govern, again, I think it should be based on real impacts on real people's lives. And I think we also have to recognize that there are many things that Biden can do without Congress at all. Uh, and without even cabinet appointments. He can sign an executive order the day he steps into office that he will not, that nobody who has not been convicted of a violent crime will be deported. He can do that on day one if he wants. I think he should. He can sign an executive order on day one saying no more extraction of fossil fuels on public land. That is something the Department of Interior can do under the guidance of the president. He does not need Congress to tell him to do that. He could sign an executive order on day one, completely reinstating DACA. Those are, those are things that a Biden administration does not need Congress to do. And those are things that it would be cowardly for the Biden administration not to do. That is a mandate that voters in the key areas that swung to Democrats this cycle, that turned out in large numbers for Democrats this cycle, have given to the Democratic Party. And it would be amiss for us not to act on that. Can I quickly respond um, to that? This is, this is something that I actually feel very strongly about. And I actually think it, the idea of not resorting to a flurry of executive orders. I, I'm very concerned about the, our balance of powers. The executive branch has been expand, has been expanding, but particularly over Trump, has completely overtaken Congress, Inspector Generals, the judiciary. Its power is enormously um, above where it should be. So I'm I'm very concerned that I actually don't want Biden to do all these executive orders. And I actually think it is the it is. I know about brave, but it's the opposite of cowardly to appreciate the, it's so tempting. We can fix all these problems with these executive orders. We just move money around, you know, here or there. But I think it's very important to preserve our system that you not resort to executive orders because Congress is completely dysfunctional and is falling apart. There needs to be a, a you know, a, attempt constantly to work with Congress and have laws passed that way, the main way, and by the way, that they're supposed to go, that's the main process they're supposed to go through. Um, so I guess I, I appreciate 
there's so much that needs to be fixed. And I, if, if Mitch McConnell is being an, an A, <laughs> then it's going to be hard. But I, I really think there has to be a, 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 a big attempt to work with Congress and not just resort to executive order. I, I would disagree because I think that the fundamental purpose of government in this case and what the American people elected us to do in this case is, is not to play politics. It, it's to Im- make material improvements in people's lives. And I think we should take every constitutional means we have to improve people's lives. This is, uh, I, I don't think we should, as, as Democrats, be scared of disrespecting process when we can act within the bounds of the constitution. And I think we do a disservice to our constituents as Democrats. We mean, I think democratic elected officials do a disservice to their constituents when they don't do everything they constitutionally can to make improvements in the lives of their constituents. Please, please, please cut me off, Olga. If you if you want to, I just have a quick quick thing here. I, it it isn't it isn't politics. It's the balance of power. Is is what is 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 really is really what's at issue in my view. Um, that that we, we can't become so cynical that that we abandon our system of. Uh, of going through Congress and then to the president and then there's a veto and it goes back or veto-proof majority, et cetera, and then we get it passed. We, we can't abandon that system because then we've given up on, on, on America because why not, why not just have the executive be able to do everything they want, decree this, do this. I mean, I think I'm totally into you know, drastic measures on climate change, but doing that, doing that via executive order just seems to be, it would be very disastrous for the power balance in government. So I, I think maybe the politics thing is like being practical, but I'm just, I, I think I actually view it as a existential issue about American government of not expanding the executive branch too much through executive orders. I mean, our, our democracy has survived a lot, but what we are not sure of what will survive is our planet. We are, what we're not sure is what we, what we will survive is I think, countless human lives, especially with like issues such as COVID. And I think at some point within the bounds of the constitution, I think norms of governance become less important than human life. Okay, I'm gonna move on to, I think probably what will probably be the last question. Um, of the night. So should change within the Democratic Party be anticipated? Um, Are changes necessary? If so, what are those changes and how can they be implemented? Um, I think change is inevitable and drastic change, though I've been reading more and more and I think I'm I'm becoming partial to the idea that there's maybe going to be a big fracturing and that perhaps the um, more progressive side of the Democratic Party might split off into their own thing. And we may find ourselves in a three-party system. Now, I don't know, I, I don't know whether I would be supportive or not supportive of that. I mean, I think having 
two parties, you know, unified is is important. Um, but I do think change going forward, as I was mentioning earlier about how you appeal to voters, I think there's going to be a lot of change, and I think a lot of necessary change. Though I don't really have a good sense of what the scope of that's going to be and what the parameters are. I think there are many changes that will happen in the Democratic Party, and I'm I'm already seeing a lot of those play out within circles of the California Democratic Party that I work in, and I think those include what I, what I would like to see happen in the Democratic Party is I think that there are some ways where we have to harken back. We have to harken back to our roots in labor and with organized labor. I think we have to go back to being much closer to unions. I think looking forward much more, what we have to do is as a party recognize that America is changing, that America is increasingly a more diverse place and that some Democrats have been complacently trusting that the eventual impending non-white majority will ensure permanent democratic victory. And I think that is an extremely short-sighted way to look at politics. Democrats cannot take anyone's vote for granted going forward. And I think we saw that with the Hispanic vote this cycle. Democrats have to recognize that in order to be effective at politics, you have to be effective at governance and actually make positive changes in people's lives. And you have to earn every single vote that someone casts. Uh, a vote that someone casts for a party or for a particular candidate is not is never owed. A vote is never owed, except it's always earned. And I think that is the Democratic Party that I want to see recognizes that in its truest sense. I, I basically agree with that. So it'd be a good place. And there, I think I'm probably gonna call it done. Um, if either of you guys have any just closing comments, closing arguments. And I just like to say thank you so much for hosting this, Olga, and thank of you for course. a really nice conversation, William. Uh, and I'd like to say if you are interested in uh, in making these changes, I mean, we need people to get involved, and I think there are many ways to do that. I, I can <laughs> plug a list of organizations all day, but find an issue you're passionate about, find people you're passionate in supporting, and I mean, talk about issues and get involved and if you're of age to do so, make sure you vote. Amen to voting, legal voting of age. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you. This was really great conversation. Um, it's actually really great to be reading all the new stuff and then actually have a dialogue about it. Um, so yeah, I think this was really um, positive for me at least. Great, well, at that, I think I'm going to end the Zoom call. Thank you all for coming out tonight and having this discussion. It was super interesting to listen to. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Debatable. For more from KPLY and Anthro, check out our website at anthromagazine.org. A special thank you to Rohan Ghosh and William Rummelhart for participating in this debate, to Megatrax for providing music, and to Paulina Kuzmina for making the cover art. This has been Olga Muse for KPLY.